Hey Mom Spaghetti listeners and Ella Voss fans alike. We played some highlights from our conversation with Ella Voss during last week's show, episode 63. And since you're here now, you already know this is the full interview. Actually, it's almost like two interviews. Ella had set aside a full hour for our conversation, and it only skimmed the surface of what we both wanted to talk about, and we were both enjoying it so much, we set up another hour to continue our discussion. So we really have to thank her twice, and even that's probably not enough, you know? She was so kind, generous, and open while we talked, it was clear how great of a person she is beyond just being a fantastic musician, so we hope our thanks cover all of that stuff too. A heads up as you listen, Ella's real name is Lauren, so if you hear me refer to her as Lauren in the conversation, just know they're one and the same. Without further ado, the lovely Ella Voss. Ella Voss, welcome to Mom's Spaghetti. Thank you. How's it going? I am in self-quarantine. Yeah. Or actually, I'm practicing social distancing, but... That makes it all the better to connect with you. I'm really excited. I mentioned to you, I've been listening to your music since 2017. So really excited to get to know you a little bit better. And of course, show your music to the listeners of Mom Spaghetti and introduce you to them as well. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Absolutely. So before we get into the music itself, I think the main question that's on everyone's mind is Ella or I know your real name is Lauren. What are you up to in this crazy time of pandemic? What shows are you binging? Are you reading anything? <laughs> well, I have been taking a lot of bubble baths. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we call self-care. Yeah. I mean, I already kind of took a lot of baths, but now it's on Superdrive. Today's day four of quarantine for me. I've gone on a couple hikes. Are you big into hiking? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I rock climb. And then obviously I haven't been able to rock climb or go to the climbing gym in a while. I have an immunodeficiency. And so I started social distancing almost two weeks ago. And I'm like super high risk. And I already have a lung infection. So I've been social distancing for a little while already. My life doesn't look that much different as a musician because I have a studio at my house. I've been working on my album alone in my studio most days. That hasn't really changed. You say this is just business as usual. This the is whole kind world of business is catching up to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you do bouldering? I did that once last year. That's the one without... Um... With no ropes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do both. Okay. I haven't gone outside yet, though. I just go to the gym. I did bouldering once, and I enjoyed falling back on those cushy mattresses way too much to go outside to do that. Yeah. Knowing that there's something soft to catch you makes it a different experience, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And then as far as hiking is concerned, I don't consider myself too big of a hiker, but my dad lives in northern Arizona, so I've been to Sedona a number of times, and I actually just got back from hiking Patagonia. So I didn't know oh, if any of nice. those are cool to you. I just thought yeah, I would share. Yeah, cool. I don't love working out, but I love being outside. Yeah, I love being in the outdoors. I love camping. I'm potentially thinking of just packing up and going on a camping trip for these two weeks of quarantine. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. And you're located outside of LA, right? I'm in LA. I'm in in LA. Where would you go for camping? The Angeles Forest is really close. It's only like 20 minutes to get to campsites and they are gorgeous. 
But I'd probably, since I have time, go out to Joshua Tree. And the weather's not so bad out there right now. It is crazy. Are you in LA as well? No, no, no. I'm outside of Boston. I'm on the East Coast. Oh, it's wild that LA is getting so much rain right now, of course. So many, like, can't go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's kind of how you want it to be, right? I hate rain, personally. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) It would just be nice to, like... Be outside. Be outside. Yeah, I know. This is the time where I'm really wishing that I had a dog. I'm like, ugh, this this would be the perfect time to get one. Yeah, it's kind of great. I have a little Yorkie. His name is Howard. And my boyfriend has a half pit, half Great Dane named Blueberry. So they're entertaining right now. I believe it. Yeah. (laughs) They are not practicing social distancing, right? No. (laughs) I mean, I guess they always do. I don't know. Right. Well, I just mean they probably play with each other. Actually, they kind of avoid each other. Oh. Yeah. Well. They like each other. They're just like. They kind of do their own thing. They just do their own thing. Yeah. Oh, well. The easy life of a dog. Yeah. They have it so well. Anyway, besides that, quarantine, like, daily life doesn't look that much different. But I've had a few freakouts that we're going to run out of food, that this is never going to end, that life as we know it is going to be different, which actually, I mean, maybe is true. Yeah, I really just am playing the I'm not guessing anything. I just yeah, going to see what happens. So I am guessing that thousands of years from now, people will be like, so where did the the elbow punch handshake oh, the come greeting? from? Yeah, because no one's going to shake hands anymore. We're all just going to be elbow punchers or whatever. I don't even know what to call it. Tapping. I'll tell you what, I think I'd be down for that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> But, like, handshaking is a thing of the past. Yeah. Like, our future will not know what a handshake is, and they're going to think it's so weird. When they find out that we used to do that, they're going to be like, ew. Yeah, what were those Western civilizations thinking? Yeah. What were they thinking? Shaking hands. Oh, my gosh. As a guy, this is the difficulty I always run into. It's like, do I give someone a handshake? Do I give them the informal dap? Fist bump, hug. There's too many options. So I'm down with just saying it's an elbow bump from now on. Yeah. Elbow bumps. And if that winds up being the future that we live in, first of all, I'm okay with it. And second, Lauren, I'm giving you credit for calling it. And I'll tell the listeners, you heard it here first. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We'd be like, singer, songwriter, future teller, crystal ball seer. Oh, yeah. She does it all. But I do want to get into the singer-songwriter and music aspect of it. Lauren, the first thing I wanted to ask you is about the name Ella Voss. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about where that name comes from, what it means to you, and why you chose it? Yeah. Ella Voss is Ella Voss in Spanish. Ella Voss is Spanish for she, you. And that came from, I had this idea forever ago to just have a girl band called Aya. So I kind of became obsessed with this Aya idea. And I like that it's this relationship of how I see things, how you see things, how we see things together and experience things together. So that's where that idea comes from. I always expected that I would go by Ella Voss, pronounce it like a first and last name like that. Then I kind of adapted this stage name of Ella. And for a while, I was introducing myself as Lauren to people. And then when I was taking meetings and people didn't really know what Ella Voss looked like, I would introduce myself as Lauren and they'd be like, so is Ella coming? 
And I was like, oh, right. You don't know. Because I had a lot of pictures of myself up at the beginning when I put out white noise. And yeah, so then I was like, I guess I got to just be Ella. So I started calling myself Ella and I've always introduced myself as Ella. I think not for any specific reason, but I feel like the music world has been feeling smaller and smaller to me. And I just feel a little bit more comfortable. There's more people that are starting to know me as Lauren, not Ella. It's kind of always a confusing thing, though. I don't know. I don't know which one's going to stick. I literally respond to both. Well, I really like the concept. And in my mind, I'm sort of thinking about it as she is a third person and you is second person. Not to get grammatical, but then you talk about perspectives and how we experience things. So I think that's cool. Yeah. I'm not sure if it sounded like that's what you were going for. That's ex- that's what I was going for. Yes. <laughs> do you ever feel like, how do I want to phrase this question? Do you ever feel like when you're in the songwriting mentality, you become Ella? No. Do you feel like Ella's a part of you or is it just one and the same? It's just one and the same. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if you were like Superman and Clark Kent over there. No, I think that would be really difficult, at least for me. I just feel like I have to be whoever I am in that moment. I guess there was a part of me for a while that felt like Ella was the more extreme version of myself, who was a little bit more daring and less afraid of what people thought if she spoke her mind. But slowly that's just kind of become who I also am. Well, I think that's cool. I mean, I felt like that a little bit. I studied Mandarin in college. And when I went to China, like I wasn't Keith, I was my Chinese name. And I felt like he was really outgoing in a lot of ways that I might not have been before. And then I gradually felt myself grow into that still as Keith. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe you've had a similar experience. Exactly. How did you get started in music, Lauren? From the beginning. However you take that question, I'm (laughs) super intrigued. And if there are two beginnings or three, I'm very interested to hear all of them. Because I know a lot of artists that I've spoken to feel like they've had different musical lives and musical journeys. Like one was started at 12 and then 18. Exactly. Yeah, there's been many musical journeys. I started playing piano when I was five, and I studied classical piano through my mid-twenties, I guess. And I was a very strict, like, I only play classical music kind of person. And when I was in high school, like, I was really into bands. Like, when I was 12, me and my friends started a band called Colorblind, where we didn't play any music or writing songs. We just wrote lyrics and took pictures. (laughs) (laughs) And our entire mission was to go on tour with Hanson. Success? No, (laughs) not at all. Outside of that, I turned on a lot of my friends who wanted me to join their emo pop-punk bands. I went to college for piano, and right before my senior year, I was like working on my master's audition tapes. I was going to go get my master's in music theory. And I was kind of like, what am I going to do the rest of my life? Like, I don't want to be a teacher. I don't really know what to do if I like just do more piano school. And I always loved writing, but didn't really know how I wanted to do that or how to get better. And right around that time, this college band was begging me to join their band. And so I joined. I was like, yeah, why not? And I like kind of dropped everything else and bought all these keyboards and went headfirst into this garage band 
four-piece indie folk band. And that became my life for seven years. I married the guitarist. We all moved to L.A. We were in Orange County. We moved up to L.A. And we played all the L.A. venues all the time. Then there was all this band drama. After a while, like, it was just getting impossible to, like, put any music out. We were just writing and recording all the time. I feel like this is when I really learned how to finish a song and record and sing, really. I never really sang in front of people that much before I joined this band. That was really how I found my voice, because I thought it was weird and interesting. Was that band Borns? No. No, this was before Borns. Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. I mean, nothing ever happened. Like, we didn't do anything. But I learned everything. I learned everything about being in a band. It's so fascinating to hear you say, you know, I love the phrase that you found your voice, especially when talking about singing. But when I hear you sing on these songs that I listen to by you, Ella, I'm thinking, wow, her voice is so amazing in that high, breathy register. Did you know that you could reach those notes and you had that vocal capacity or that really no. wasn't until you were with the band? No, that wasn't even, I didn't even know I could sing that high until I was writing as Ella Voss. No, when I was singing with the band, I definitely sang low. Everyone always told me they loved when I sang low and I'd sing like Nico low. We'd do like Velvet Underground covers and I would sing in the same key as her, this raspier tone. So then, towards the end of that band, I wanted to do some other things. A friend suggested me to audition for Borns. I had never been a hired musician before, and I thought, well, this would be cool to actually make this a career, be a touring musician. It's kind of what I had always wanted to do. So I auditioned and I got the part. Those Born songs are pretty high, and I was singing harmonies, and I was a lot of times singing higher than Garrett was singing, and so I think I got comfortable singing up high, and then when I went to start writing my own music, the producer I was working with, he just was always like, sing higher, that sounds cool. It's just been this constant push, but then it became where I'm comfortable singing. I like singing low too, but it's definitely, I think, a unique sound when I sing up high. Absolutely. The word for me really is breathy. And I think I used that to describe your music at some point, maybe on exhale, because I just like the terminology being in. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so cool. I really, no, I said I've been a fan of yours for a long time. So it's really cool to hear not just your vocals on these songs, but also to hear you grow as an artist and feel like I'm on that journey with you. Oh, thanks. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Right. If you were in Borns, how did that go? And then how did you eventually decide to go solo? A couple of months into playing with Borns, I found out I was pregnant. So that put an end date on that because they were like planning a 14-month-long tour. That would have been a couple of months after I had my son. So I toured with him up until I was like nine months pregnant or something. Wow. Yeah, it was wild. <laughs> I bet. And right after I found out I was pregnant, it was when I met my producer that I've written and made everything with. We just kind of started working slowly in between my tours with Borns and then having my son. And it's like I knew I was working towards a solo project. That was my plan. But it took over a year to be like, okay, yeah, this is happening. Well, sometimes it's so tough for me. I don't know about you, but for me, it's so tough to balance a fake fork in the road, like putting my foot down and saying, this is when I'm going to do something, and then an event forcing me into doing it. Yeah, exactly. 
I wanted to find out who's the producer and how did you get linked up with, is it him, her? Him. His name's Lewis. He's very secretive. Okay, I can. I don't have to play that part. <laughs> oh no, you can't. That's what I tell everyone. He's just super talented, but also is fine to just not have any human interaction. Another one who's enjoying the social distancing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, his name is Lewis Hughes. But a lot of the first album and maybe the EP, he didn't want to put his name on it because he just didn't want to take the focus away from me and like make it about himself, which I always thought was really cool. Like He's not a ghost producer, but I'm not producing it. It's funny, every time someone asks me, who is this producer? <laughs> he's incredible. He's also my best friend and manager and everything plays a lot of roles. So how did you meet Lewis? Oh, it's kind of a controversial story. Between you and Lewis or among other people? Among my ex-band. Okay. So there was this huge overlap. I was still in my old band, my college band, and I was touring with Borns. And my college band had met we had gotten linked up with Lewis through Sony ATV publishing. And so me and the lead singer went to write with Lewis. I think we wrote two songs. They were really awkward sessions. And at the time, <laughs> me and my band, I had just told my band, don't contact me for a month because I was so mad at them. We had so much band drama. It was like August of 2014, I guess. Yeah. Whoa. And I was like, don't contact me for a month. And then like <laughs> three weeks into that, they were like, well, we got linked up with this producer. I think it's a good opportunity. Would you consider coming back to the band to do this? And I was like, okay, fine. I kind of went into the sessions like, I don't even know why I'm doing this because I know I'm going to quit this band any day now. Me and the lead singer and the drummer really weren't getting along at all. But that's how I met Lewis. And Lewis went to the band while I was on tour with Borns just to feel out this idea of, hey, what if Lauren was the lead singer of the band? Because I wasn't the lead singer. And what if I only write with her for the band? To which they were super resistant, but also kind of like, well, that's what we have to do. We'll do whatever we have to do to make it work. But, you know, you shouldn't trust Lauren because she hasn't even told you, but she's pregnant. So I don't know if I would trust her. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh man yeah i don't anyway. want to say anything negative about the band because i never know who i'm going to cross paths with but i can understand I, your frustration that's all I i'll mean, say on the matter yeah i mean we all did shitty things to each other so in retrospect i'm like i don't know but i was pretty pissed when i heard that and immediately was like okay yeah i'm done also, there's no way I'm going to be the lead singer of this band with you guys like this is hell i quit mic drop yeah, <laughs> I quit. <laughs> but Lewis and I had all these sessions set up that me and the lead singer were supposed to go to. And now I like try to call Lewis and be like, okay, well, I'm quitting the band. So don't worry about the sessions. I'm really sorry. I think the band's going to figure something out. Maybe they'll replace me with some girl because they really think they need a girl in their band. And he was like, oh, just come. Just come anyway. And I was like, this guy does not hear what I'm saying. Like, I literally just told him, like, quitting the band. But I go and then I explain the same thing to him when I get to our session. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to just go be a mom? Because that's fine. You know, you can do that. And I was like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I just don't want to be with those guys anymore. And I had a bunch of demos that I had been working on and played them. And he was like, cool, well, let's do this. If that's okay with you, let's work together. I just want to work with you. 
which I was like, that's is this bull? I'm six months pregnant. He knows what he's getting into. This is going to be a really slow going thing. I also really hadn't written that much on my own. I'd never been the lead singer at a show ever, but he had all this faith in me. I think because I had all this faith in myself because I felt like a superhuman because I was pregnant. <laughs> and it, yeah, I just catapulted us into that. But the band was really pissed because they were like, you quit because you were just waiting for the right opportunity to leave us. And that's why you've been waiting. You've just been waiting for this and you stole it right underneath our feet. And I was like, that's exactly not what happened, but you know, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that that was such a negative time and lack of support from your band at the time, but it sounds like we're on the, we're on the greener, wait, what am I trying? <laughs> it's like, wait, we're on the greener, other side. Greener, on the other side. Uh, can I throw a lot of cliches in here? Just I like mean, that was, finish I mean, my sentences. That was not a tough time compared to everything that came after that, but yes. <laughs> I have read a lot about this. I just want to say, you know, I've already expressed my gratitude for your music, but I am so appreciative of you setting aside the time today and of continuing on this journey for yourself and for your fans. It's a, I don't know, it just, you were saying you felt like you were superhuman. And I always share this sentiment with the artists. It's like to us on the listener's end, you guys are the superhumans. And then to have read about a lot of the stuff in your life, Lauren, I'm just in awe at, like, I don't know, I'm trying to throw words together like bravery and strength. It's just a truly incredible story. And I did want to get into that. So thank you for sharing the beginning of your musical journey with us. I did have one question before. I was like, oh man, look at that tease. I did want to ask one question. You said you were strict about only playing classical music. When did you shift that mentality into I'm okay playing pop songs or writing different music? I always liked pop music and I love, like I grew up listening to a lot of rock music and like watching concerts with my dad. So like I always loved bands and performing the thing that I love so much about playing piano was performing. Like, I loved doing recitals. I think more of my resistance to it was that it was always just shitty guy bands. That I was like, you guys are just, it's going to be such a waste of time all the time. Like, you know, there's going to be so much drama and so hard to get anyone to focus on anything. And, and you were right. And to be the mom. And I was right. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out that that's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah, I always liked the idea of it, but I think I always knew that I probably needed to do it my own way and not join someone else's thing. I think it just took me going through all those experiences to finally have the courage to be like, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't need to wait for someone to hand it to me. Like, I just need to go grab it and not feel so ashamed of wanting this. I kind of felt the shame and the wanting to go after my dreams. Like I just felt like, oh, they're too big or maybe I'll fail. I'll let so many people down if I don't succeed. Yeah, I had a lot of fear going and chasing my dreams. Actually, I appreciate you saying that. I feel like if anything, that might resonate I mean, it resonates with me a lot too, but I feel like that might resonate a lot with the listeners. And I think it's a good lead in as well for you were six months pregnant when you made the decision to go solo. And now obviously you have a son. And I know I've seen you talk in some interviews about how white noise was after you had your son. 
Can you share with us a little bit about what all of that was like? I know that's such a broad question. (laughs) And I hope you understand that for me as a guy, and I don't have kids, but for me as a guy, it's just a lot of these concepts are things that I've heard about and learned about, but I can never truly understand. So I hope that's as good of an excuse as I can come up with as to why that question's so broad. I think it's a hard thing to understand for anyone. I mean, when I was pregnant, reading about what to expect and what it's going to be like, there's just literally nothing that prepares you for having a baby. Like, there is no real... I don't, it sounds so I feel funny like it's when you say it, but it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. And like our culture now really doesn't share... Like, there's not much community around raising kids. It feels very private and like something that two parents figure out together and no one else. And I would read all this stuff about having your support system and your tribe. And I know some people do that, but to me, I hadn't seen that modeled really. All I knew is it's tough and you just figure it out. My mom was a great example, but at the time I was kind of cocky and I was like, well, you know, mom, you had your way of doing things and I have my way of doing things and I'm going to do them my way and kind of turn down her advice. And it wasn't so much that I didn't really want to turn down her advice, but my ex, my son's dad kind of was in that same place of, no, we're going to figure it out ourselves. We don't need help. Like he didn't say that, but that's what it felt like. What was some of that advice? Are you okay sharing that? Or if it's private, I don't want to. Oh, just like really simple stuff. Like my mom, like, why don't I come stay with you for the first two weeks? Because they're really tough. Baby's going to be up every night and I can help you out. And it was like, no, we want to be alone. And then when I was like trying to put my son on a schedule early on, it was not working and it was just making me frustrated and upset. She was like, you need to stop having these big expectations of getting on a schedule because you just need to do what works. And this clearly isn't working for you or Renee. And I'd be like, no, 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 we just have to do it. We just got to figure it out. And I like made myself miserable trying to live up to these ideas that I had about what it should look like and how it should feel and sticking to like, well, I have these ideas and I made these decisions that I'm going to breastfeed for this amount of time, even though it's destroying my soul. Like I hated breastfeeding so much, but I just forced myself to do it because I was like, well, this is what I need to do. And I just wasn't okay with, I was so terrified of doing anything different. Like I just didn't have a lot of grace for myself. I put all this pressure of, I guess, trying to live up to this superhero idea that I had of myself. Ultimately, I should have been getting help for postpartum depression and I wasn't, I like didn't really believe that I had it. My ex didn't believe that I had it. I just didn't take care of myself. And then also my ex at the time, he was still a touring musician, so he was gone a lot. Was this the guitarist from the band? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was just trying to put the pieces in the puzzle together. Yeah. Yeah. So just like imagine everything in your life has changed, but you are really trying to believe that it hasn't. There are some ways in which that feels all too real for me, where it's like we have this ideal of what the future looks like, and then we get there and we try and be the person we saw in the future, but the future is different. So it doesn't make sense to try and force the per. Like if the future was as we thought it was going to be, then it would make sense for that version of ourselves to exist in that space. But the future is not what we think it's going to be. And I was with somebody recently who said, it's crazy, humans are so bad at predicting the future. 
trying to remember who said that to me. But we think we're so good at it. Yeah. And we we're like terrible. We're terrible at it. And we never want to be wrong. It's like being right is one oh, of the best yeah. and most satisfying feelings. And it hurts to be wrong to yourself too. So I can only imagine it does. I think that's the biggest thing that holds a lot of us back is we don't want to be wrong, even just to ourselves. It goes back to that even being scared to go after your dreams because you're like, if I fail, then I was wrong. You know, I was wrong about something and being wrong feels so bad and unforgivable. I think the worst kind of being wrong for me is, and you sort of alluded to it, Lauren, is when we're wrong about ourselves. You know, I don't mind when people don't respond to me or something doesn't work out because I can put the blame on somebody else. But when I have to look myself in the mirror and say, it didn't work out because of you, that's the hardest thing. I think the biggest thing, I didn't think that I did, but I just had really high expectations for myself for what I thought it should be like. Even though the whole time I was pregnant, I was reading about be flexible, know that things aren't going to go exactly the way you think they are. But knowing that and actually doing it are so different, like right. not even close. It was just a matter of experiencing like this really isn't going to work if I keep trying to live up to these expectations. That's just not the way life works. Like, yeah, I can have this expectation that I'm not going to have postpartum depression and I can be in denial, but that doesn't make me not have postpartum depression. All it does is hurt me more. I've had a couple of people ask me, well, is it the stigma around it? Is it, you know, this uncomfortable mental health issue? People ask me, is it the stigma of it that made it hard to admit to myself that I wasn't feeling okay? I don't think it was that. I really think it was just a personal Benchmark. expectation that I had. Yeah, yeah. I understand that completely. How did you get through it? Like, was there something that clicked for you that said, this isn't normal, I need to address this? Was there a specific moment in time or event that led to that? And then, or I'll, <laughs> let me, I love asking multiple questions, so I'll hold off. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, Keith. <laughs> I don't know if there was one light bulb moment. There was a lot of little things. I remember one day I went for a run to my friend's house. My son was about nine months old. I remember running over to her house and getting to her house and just crying and her being just really honest with me and saying, I don't think you're okay and I'm worried about you and it's okay that you are feeling like this, but I want to help you and I want you to get help for yourself. This isn't the Lauren that I know. I know that you're not okay. And it kind of woke me up where I was like, okay, yeah. Like I kind of knew this in my own being that I like didn't feel okay. But I hadn't really had someone say it to me that clearly. All I heard was, oh, you're just tired because you're sleep deprived because that's what happens when you're a new mom. Or you're not eating enough because you're breastfeeding. So you should be eating a lot more. So you're just you're not getting enough nutrition. I was fixing those things and it still wasn't really making a difference in my daily stress and anxiety. But yeah, so when my friend said that to me, something clicked and I was like, okay, this isn't just me that thinks it. Other people are seeing it too. And I remember running back home and just from that awareness now, I remember that I noticed how pretty it was outside. And I remember looking at the flowers on these trees and being like, oh, wow, it's so beautiful outside. And all the flowers are in bloom. It was spring. It was like this time of year. Just being like, where have I been? I haven't noticed any of this. And that was like a little moment that just 
that's when things started to change and I tried to get some help and work through that. But to be honest, I didn't really get the help then that I needed. And I'm now doing EMDR therapy to work through that trauma. I'm not familiar with that acronym, EMDR. Ooh, it's eye movement. Oh my gosh, you're going to have to look it up. Yeah, I'm Googling it right now. (laughs) Okay, I can't remember what... Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yes, yeah. So it kind of was like, it's not like hypnosis, but you move your eyes left to right or follow a sound or do like a left to right tapping. And what it ultimately does is moves the trauma that's stored in a certain part of your brain and moves it to where the rest of kind of meaningless memories live so that it's not this blown out of proportion traumatic memory that you're still living in. That's fascinating. I'd never heard of this. So that's something that you started doing a few years ago and you're still doing it now? No, I literally just started doing it a month ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And you enjoy it? You find it therapeutic and helpful? Or is it too soon to tell? Too soon to tell, but we have been, like right now I've been working through some of my cancer treatment trauma and working through that, and it does seem to be helping. It's pretty intense though. Like, I don't know if it's enjoyable, but it's like, it's definitely working. How long is each session? I'm just so intrigued. I've never heard of this before. I guess we do it for 40 minutes. Okay. And there's like a whole... I mean, I'm obviously not an expert on it at all. I just yeah, no do. worries. I mean, compared to me, you are. Yeah, but part of the session is you kind of return to the moment of trauma through this left, right, left, right, left, right, following the light thing. You just see what comes to your mind. You bring it up, you talk about it. So there is this whole first half of the session where it does kind of feel like you're back in the trauma. And so then we have to do like a whole wind down of, okay, let's take that trauma and block it away and put it somewhere that we don't need to worry about it right now and go to your happy place and bring you back to reality so that you're not living in the trauma. I once heard a really, I took a seminar and there were a lot of things they presented that it was almost like I had the philosophies, but they gave me the language to help describe it, if that makes sense. Yeah. One of the things they said was they were huge on not letting your past define you and the past is the past and you can appreciate it for what it was, but they compared it to luggage and they were like, this is a couch from your old house and your ex is sitting on the couch and now you're in a new relationship. Why would you ever bring that couch into this house with your ex on the couch? It was just, I have this vision of baggage as a broad term, but. Yeah, I think that's great. That's my trying to connect with what you're doing, which I think is great. Like I've noticed in the social forefront of, I guess, everything now, but especially in music, there's all this talk about mental health and I just enjoy talking about it and really respect people who are going through steps to make sure that they are healthy mentally and even so strong enough to share their story and talk about it. Yeah. Well, to me, I mean, it's taking a long time to get here, but to me, it's no different than any other health issues. So like, I guess I just don't feel uncomfortable sharing anything because to me, it feels the same as sharing about going through my cancer treatment or having a cold, like having a chronic infection or having something that we know is physical. To me, it's become, it's just the same. I really hope that more people can see it like that. And I really hope that it just becomes standard in our health system and especially with health insurance that it just they're treated equally. 
I think we honestly would be such a healthier society if everyone had access to take care of their mental health. Definitely. And it's funny is not the right word. I don't really have a word for it, but I love drawing connections. And the way you phrased that reminded me of we had another artist on late in 2019 in December. She's a rising pop star in India, and she does a lot with mental health in India. And she said it's ridiculous how it's stigmatized because if you break your wrist, you're going to go to the doctor. Like if something's wrong with your wrist and it's not working properly, you are going to go to the doctor and get it fixed. So if something is wrong with your brain and the way you're processing events in your life, why would that be any different? Yeah. And when she said it that way, it just clicked in a different way than it had before. And I feel like you're on the same page. 100%. I definitely want to talk about the cancer and I'm going to put that on it's on deck. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was like, wait, is this the right phrase? I don't want to mess it up. But I wanted to find out. So obviously it impacted the music on some level because that's how we even got white noise. But do you feel like music helped you through it or music suffered because of it? Or do you feel like music and this postpartum depression were just kind of functioning side by side? I guess I'm just curious how the songwriting and recording process, if it even was going on at the same time. It was going on at the same time. Definitely things suffered because I was doing both. And I feel I've felt that in a way, just through the past five years. But music helps me so much. It's the only thing that really hasn't been changing in my life. Like that goal is still the same. The way that that works for me in general, like me writing songs is stable. Like I can't think of why I wouldn't ever be able to write a song unless I couldn't see or hear or talk, maybe. Even then, I don't know. I feel like there's a ways around that. So I think it just always created consistency. And it did, the postpartum depression did kind of focus me to write the way that I did, probably just because I was so tired that that overthinking part of my brain had really given up by that time, which is kind of the same thing that happened when I was going through cancer treatment. I think I was so tired that creating in some ways becomes easier in those times of stress because the distraction is really nice and it's a little bit easier to get focused because you can't overthink too much. It's almost like a little bit of clarity. Yeah, you're like, this is what's important. Yes, 100%. Yeah. When you were going through all of this postpartum depression and finding your way out of it, I wanted to find out if music played any role in that whatsoever, and if so, what it was. With this postpartum depression, I guess it was kind of the way that White Noise was birthed. I don't think I would have written that song without that experience. And I, like and your, I was just going to say, I like your play on words that that's yeah. when White Noise was birthed. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt it. I just wanted to like let the listeners know I caught it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then to have that song do well and be accepted and it made me feel seen and heard. It meant a lot to me to be like, oh, I can share what I'm going through as hard as it is or as maybe unpopular as it would be to share. At the time when that song came out at the end of 2016, I didn't feel like there was as much conversation around it as now, especially moms in music. So I was really terrified to be like, oh, hey, I'm a new musician. I'm also a mom. And I wrote the song about postpartum depression. To me, I was terrified that that just wasn't going to be accepted. So the fact that it was, was like, oh, yeah, this is, I'm doing the right thing. People need this. 
I need it, other people need it. And that's really what got me really going as an artist. And it's inspired and encouraged me to continue doing that with every song I write, to just remind myself that if I give myself what I need in a song, I know I'm serving other people as well. Absolutely. And I know the line in the hook that's where the name comes from is because it's all white noise swallowing me. Mm -hmm. Did that come to you in an instant or did you have to work for that line? Because Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) It was in an instant. I was at my parents' house at the time with my five-week-old son trying to put words to that melody. Literally was holding him in his room, trying to get him to take a nap and singing that and was just singing about the white noise machine. But I didn't even think it was good when I wrote it. I was like, I don't know if this even makes sense. (laughs) But but I liked it. I liked the way it sounded and it felt right. And all the rest of the lyrics kind of just flowed after that. So the white noise machine, was that for you or for your son? For my son. Okay. Yeah. It was helped him fall asleep. Yeah. I know people who still sleep with that. Oh, yeah. I have two things. One is that this is what I love about music so much is it feels like every song is a moment in time captured and it can be a different moment for you as the artist who is singing about it. And then when I finally hear the song, I'll put that song in its place in my own life. Yeah. I just think it's so cool that music I don't want to say it slows down time. It's like it encapsulates cool moments, sometimes not so cool, but for positivity's sake, cool moments. And then I love reading, Lauren, about when songs come together. And I just always feel like, maybe not always, but I really genuinely feel like the songs that wind up doing the best are some combination of it just clicked for the artist and it was so cathartic and everything just came out really quickly and easily. And on the other side, it's when the artists are at their most vulnerable. It's just so relatable as the listener. Yeah. You know, I'm just gushing about music and your music right now. But it- no, I think you're right. The thing I've been noticing is, or I don't know, maybe I've kind of always known this, but I think it's a statement when you don't need to know the story of a song or how it was written, you can just feel the vulnerability in it and you can just make it about yourself. You can see yourself in it. I've read a lot of stuff about how there's kind of just been this overwhelming surge of artists need to be as vulnerable as possible and have stories about the song and every detail and as if that's something new. <laughs> like, right. Artists have always been doing that. Like, I don't think we have to always share why a song was written. I think it's great. I think it's inspiring. But ultimately, a song, you should be able to take it and make it your own. And if you can do that without knowing... Like, you don't need that story to know that. You should feel it in the song. I haven't thought about that. I think that's a really valid and interesting point you bring up. I'm likening it in my head to if an author or a director leaves an ending open to interpretation, I feel like it kind of ruins it if you get their opinion of what happens. And it's like they want you to interpret for yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, every it's just in our human nature to make everything about ourselves. So, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> so you have to put yourself in everything. That's how you connect. Yeah, I just I've read some stuff about how I think people or some people have been discussing is the reason a song was written. Does that story make a song better? Does that make sense? It totally does. I feel like I don't think it does. 
you could have a great story about why a song was written and it could have a great meaning, but ultimately if that doesn't come across in the song without your story, I don't think it matters. I agree. And I really haven't given this much thought. So I'm truly speaking candid response to you. I almost feel like what you're talking about is like you have an interpretation of something and then finding out that it was intended to be interpreted differently. Like it doesn't make your interpretation any less valid. Right. But it feels personally like maybe a little invalidated. Yeah. Like I thought this was about this and then I found out that it wasn't. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's two sides of the same coin, though. There's pros and cons. Totally, yeah. But, you know, I actually, I didn't know that about white noise until I was reading up in preparation for this conversation. And I felt kind of similar. I was like, oh, it means something different than what I thought it was. Yeah. For this song in particular, I don't think it's good or bad. I think a pro here is that it opened my mind to a different part of this conversation than I would have had access to. Yeah. I guess my point is that I don't think the reason a song was written should ever be highlighted more than the song itself. I don't think it's enough to carry a song, I guess. The song should be good on its own merit. Yeah. I just like to feel. (laughs) I'm just going to leave it at that. Like I just like listening to music that makes me feel a type of way. Me too. Yeah. And if the music invokes some type of emotion, then I think it's done its job. Exactly. Yeah. You got me hooked with White Noise, though. I think You Don't Know About Me might have been my first song that I heard by you. Oh, nice. But they were around the same time. And I was like, oh, I really like this woman's music. Thank you. Yeah. I know we put that other conversation on deck for a second. And I appreciate you going into that very abstract tangent with me. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned a few times in our conversation your battle with cancer. And from what I read, I think it's over. I hope it is. I am really appreciative that you were honest about it in some of the interviews I read. And I just am so happy that I don't want to speak incorrectly, but I think you beat it, right? Well, I still don't really know, actually. I mean, for the time being, I guess I'm good. I saw my doctor in January and she was like, you're probably in remission, but I had some spots in my lungs show up on my last scan and I haven't really found out what they are yet. Okay. So let me change my statement. I'm crossing (laughs) my fingers, all prayer. I hope that this ends soon. But I think it's just a fungus or something. (laughs) Um, But then like when I was going to go... Yeah, no, it's hilarious. I think I got a fungus from when I went and shot a music video at the Salton Sea where there's toxic sand and I was like rolling around in trash in an abandoned house. So (laughs) probably not the best idea for someone with an immunodeficiency, (laughs) prone to chronic infections, but you know, the sake of art. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) But then by the time I would have gotten my lung scope, coronavirus is taking over the world taking over and i really didn't want to subject my lungs to a hospital if i didn't need to so i'm just waiting but i feel fine well i'm glad that you feel fine yeah but i'm likely in remission well i'll keep my fingers crossed that you are i'm very hopeful 
So I guess, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? And I guess my next follow-up question would be, what was the timeline from dealing with and partially getting over the postpartum depression leading into the cancer? Because it feels like you've had a dramatic five-year span. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty much all back-to-back. Let's see. Postpartum was really bad half of 2015, all through 2016, a little bit into 2017. I was really distracted. I was working on my album that year, got my album out at the end of 2017, went on tour spring of 2018 in March and found out about my lymphoma, then did an entire tour knowing that I was going to have to come back and do treatment. Oh, so you finished tour after you found out? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, it was my first headline tour. I had a bunch of sold out shows. I would have been devastated to cancel it. So I just, I've been telling a lot of people, I feel so prepared for social distancing and quarantine because I've been doing it the past two years. Like on that tour, I most of the time had to be alone because my team didn't want to get me sick because I was immune compromised. I tried to rest as much as possible so that I could play the shows every night. And so I just laid around all day alone, play the show, go alone to a hotel room, sleep, get in the van, sleep, get to a green room, lie around, play a show. Like, wow. The shows were so fun, but it was tough. At that time, were you keeping that information to yourself and your family and your tour team? Like, the fans had no no idea, right? No idea. I don't really remember why we decided to not tell everyone. I think because we didn't really know what my situation was. We didn't know what kind of treatment I was going to be doing. We didn't know what stage it was at. We didn't know how serious it was. There's a lot of unknowns because I needed to get more tests done. Yeah, so we didn't want to share information and not have answers for people. So I can understand that. Yeah, so we just waited until we had all the information. So how long was it between you finding out and then you returning home and getting more tests and answers? I think it was almost seven weeks. But I flew home from the tour twice to get two different biopsies. So I flew home after the third show to get the first biopsy. Oh, wow. So you found out at the beginning of tour. I saw an oncologist the day before I left on tour who I tried to convince her that I had a really bad case of mono (laughs) (laughs) or malaria. (laughs) I don't know what the... (laughs) God. Mono is like a... I don't know what it is. It's like a... I'm not going to try to describe it. It's the kissing disease. Yeah, it's like a really bad cold. Right. I had it before. So I was like, it's mono. I just have mono. Or malaria, because I had the symptoms were similar. She was like, yeah, probably not, but <sighs> you know, we're going to run all these tests, and I just need you to go get a biopsy in four days. So I oh, went and God. played the first three shows of tour, and then flew back and got the biopsy. And then flew back to continue tour. And then flew back, yeah. I flew in and out on the same day of my biopsy, which was insane. And I like definitely went to the hospital and still have glitter on my eyes and all over my face from the show the night before. And then had to get back on a plane, drugged out of my mind from the strongest painkillers that the hospital can give you. Oh my God. <laughs> I fly to New Orleans and play a show the next night. 
Yeah. And then I had to fly back again two weeks after that to do the bone marrow biopsy, which wasn't so bad. And then what else? Maybe got another scan. I just have to say, I am so in awe. You are so strong and strong-willed. I am sitting here just staring blankly at my screen. I, I mean, I hope that you know, I'm looking forward to putting this out there for everyone to hear, but I really hope your fans <laughs> appreciate what you did for them. Like that is, I, I can't even, I mean, yeah, I'm just speechless. Yeah. I think that's so powerful. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't feel like it was that hard to do. Like I really do love making music and performing. I would rather do that than anything else. So anything that gets in the way of that, I'm like, no. This is just a hassle and annoying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was probably around the start of summer of 18 when you started treatments. Is that right? Yeah. Well, so then I started treatments end of April, maybe. Treatments was eight weeks long. It wasn't that bad, but I did get sick in the middle of it. And I ended up actually, I finished the first round of treatment, but I couldn't. I was supposed to keep doing the treatment once a month. I couldn't do it because I got too sick. Turns out I have an immune deficiency, and so then the treatment just lowered my immune system too much. So then after treatment, when I should have been better, I had a year of chronic infections, which oh was God. worse than the treatment. I had an 11-month sinus infection and a five-month-long ear infection. Couldn't hear out of both of my ears for most of that time. Couldn't hear anyone talking to me. That's so difficult. Yeah. Was music a part of your life at all during that time span? Yep. I, I wrote during treatment, so I would feel sick. I would get treatment on Thursday. I'd feel sick Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. But then Tuesday, Wednesday, I would feel almost normal. So I'd go to the studio and record those days. Then I'd do treatment again. And while I was laying around, like I'd have demos to listen to and write lyrics to. Yeah, I would just do whatever I could and then go to the studio on the days I felt good. Same thing when I had infections. I mean, I had to record a lot of stuff, not really be able to sing the way I normally could because my nose was all stuffed up and I couldn't hear. And I had to do a lot by like just feel like I couldn't hear my voice. I have some recordings of me talking during that time and I sound like I'm deaf. Oh my God. Yeah, because I couldn't hear myself talking. And so that's when I wrote and recorded all of the Watch and Wait EP was through those chronic infections. And then that came out in January 2019. I can't really hear a difference on those tracks. Or maybe I'm not listening close enough. <laughs> yeah. You probably know your voice best. Yeah. Wow. That story is just incredible. I can't believe... I'm trying to think of a comparison <laughs> and I can't. I don't know. I just... I'm just so impressed that you, you know, in the middle of treatment, thought to yourself, well, I still have to record. Music's the most important. I can't let yeah. this get in the way of recording. Well, to me, it just felt like this is the best way to document what I'm going through. So I'm going to make it work. And it's kind of like the big takeaway that I've learned through all of this is how and I've listened to some other podcasts on this and just about this idea of obstacles and how they help you solve a problem. And I do feel like these obstacles I kept coming across helped me make an album. I think without them at the time, I probably would have done what a lot of artists, especially new artists do, where you overthink a lot. It's hard to make decisions sometimes about what you want to do and what direction you want to go. And I still struggle with that at times, but a lot of the obstacles just take that element out. I mean, you're like, well, this is what I have to do. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, I need to put this album out now and I need to record these songs now. And these are the songs that have to go on it because these are the only ones that are done. And I lost my voice and I can't hear anything. So this is the EP. <laughs> Here, here we go. I get that. And I always view it as it's those moments that define us. Yeah. It's when our back is against the wall, we turn into the strongest. And sometimes strongest might be the wrong word. I guess it's like, I am blanking on any word that can properly express the abstract concept, but it's like the fullest version of ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think fullest was the lame word that I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That leads to my question of what's next, because it almost sounds like you're in this winding down period of life being so hectic. You have your four-year-old son and you have EMDR going on and hopefully you're in remission. So do you have any idea or inkling what's next for you, Lauren, and where you might draw inspiration for future songs or where you're potentially even already drawing inspiration from? Yeah. The album that, well, there's always something going on. Always. I know now that like maybe it won't always be as big as the last events I went through, but I think I've kind of realized that there's always stuff going on and I feel like I notice the small things more now. I really hope I don't have to keep going through giant life changes in order to make albums. And I don't think that's true. Like the album I'm putting out this year is called Turbulence. I put the first song out, which is also called Turbulence. Turbulence, Yeah. And most of this album was written while going through a divorce, but it's not about divorce. I don't know if any of my albums were about what I was going through, to be fair. Like, I don't know if you could call my EP a cancer EP and the other one like a postpartum EP or album. I don't think this album would necessarily ever be considered a divorce album. It's more of a celebration of taking your life back and celebrating yourself showing yourself love so that's kind of a theme i feel like i could write about for years to come right now this past week i already i think wrote the next two songs for the next album hell yeah about what we're going through now well i think that's part of the beauty of music is you don't have to explicitly say this is an album i wrote about my divorce or anything like that it's sort of what i was The point I was trying to get across earlier where it's like you as the artist are writing the music to encapsulate a moment in time. Yeah. The lyrics might not be, this is how I was feeling when I was going through cancer treatment or this is what I felt during my divorce, but it might just be, this is what I felt at the time. And for people who know that you were getting divorced, it might put it in a different context. But like you said a few minutes ago, it doesn't always have to be that the listener knows the story of the song. Right. Exactly. So I think that's something I'll take with me. Yeah. Even though it feels like half my job for Mom's Spaghetti is to find out what the hell the songs are about. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's such a funny concept. It's like we love to know what the songs are about, but ultimately the only thing that really matters to us is how the song makes us feel. Absolutely. I think that's really strong. And I feel like, I think it's just some obsession with fame that we have. Like yeah. we want to be yeah. able to put ourselves in the artist's shoes. Yeah, totally. I feel that. I want to know what it's about because I want to feel the same thing that we're feeling. But like you said, it's okay to feel what we're feeling. I think it gives us at times, like I think it helps us connect with what we're feeling. 
I can think of listening to music and it kind of knowing or at least imagining what someone else was going through when they were writing it kind of makes me connect to myself like oh yeah I feel their sadness and now I feel like I can connect to that sadness in me. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. I mean, it goes back to what you said a few minutes ago. Also, we are the protagonist in our own narratives and we want to be able to put ourselves in everything that we're doing and that we're feeling. Yeah. I think my favorite thing about music, I don't know, I have so many, but I'm like envisioning right now, I've recently been putting all of my library on shuffle just to see what comes up. And yeah, it's aggressive because I have a lot, but it's so cool how I can jump from a song from 2019 and it's so recent and I'll be thinking, oh, I remember loving this song while this was going on in my life. And then a song from 1999 will come on and I'll be like, how do I remember what I was thinking at this time or this music video and how it made me feel? Oh, it's... Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just like went on this journey. I think I was talking about this earlier last week when we talked, but... When I was shooting... Oh, yeah, and you were, like, laying on the floor listening to all those 90s rock songs. Yeah, but then also I had another conversation with some other friends right before that, and we were talking about Incubus, and I was talking about how the Pardon Me music video how it just kind of stopped me frozen in my body. I remember just being frozen in front of the TV screen when that music video came on. It just made me feel something so strong. And I like will never forget that feeling. And anytime I hear that song, I remember that feeling. I remember where I was in the living room in front of the TV, all the furniture we had. <laughs> right? Yeah. It makes me miss music videos, to be honest. This conversation. I know. I know. Like I, no joke, used to... Like my grandmother had a shore house in New Jersey. And I remember that being one of the main times where I, because I played ice hockey my whole life growing up. So Saturday mornings were not mine or they were mine, but like, you know, playing hockey. And then it was only during the summer when I had nothing on Saturday mornings. I could watch the, and Sunday mornings, and I could watch the VH1 top 20 countdown. And I just, I don't know, such a strange memory that I'm having right now. <laughs> yeah, I, remember like, yeah. I remember watching the Smash Mouth video for All Star. Like, why oh, do yeah. I remember that yeah. with the kids on the bus? <laughs> yeah. Such a nice trip down memory lane. The only other one that's coming to me is the Evanescence video for My Immortal. Oh, yeah. It's like all in black and white with a yeah. piano in the forest. Yeah. <laughs> Those were good music videos. I know. Solid. <laughs> Well, I'm thoroughly enjoying the trip down memory lane. I hope that when people listen to this, maybe they will be remembering those things too. Yeah. Or the young kids will be like, who are these people and how old are they? Yeah, yeah, likely. <laughs> Who's Evanescence? I tried to... I, tried to, I, tried to <laughs> I told this kid the other day how my very first concert that I went to was Hanson at the oh Hollywood Bowl. And I looked at him, I was like, you probably don't know who Hanson is, do you? And he was like, nope, never heard of him. <laughs> no. <laughs> Mine's like a little better. My first concert was my older half sister took my sister and I to InSync. Oh, that's great. It's like sort of the same thing, but I think InSync had a little longer staying power. Yeah, I'm like not sure if I'm supposed to be embarrassed about that. I'm not. No, that's but great. I wouldn't be. I'm not embarrassed by Hanson. <laughs> you got to see Mbop live. How many people can say that? I know. <laughs> it was insane. Ella, Lauren. 
I always ask artists that come on the show this question, mostly because it's really interesting for us as the listeners to hear from you where you draw inspiration from. So the signature question for Mom Spaghetti is a hypothetical that someone gifts you a vinyl record player. And with that vinyl record player, they give you enough cash on hand for what will serve as the first five albums in your collection of vinyls. So, Lauren Elavos, I wanted to turn it over to you and find out, with that money, what would be the first five albums you would purchase for your vinyl collection? Thanks, Keith. Yes, I was thinking about this question this morning, and I, like, the first five that came to mind, I, like, got embarrassed after I listed them because I'm like, these are so basic, but they really would make me really happy, so I'm going guilty pleasure. I'm here for it. This is your collection. This is my collection. Um, <laughs> the first one is cool, though. And this one makes me feel cool. Hell yeah. Which, <laughs> <laughs> so in college, I played in a jazz band for a little bit. And we went and replicated this Thelonious Monk concert at Town Hall in New York. It was like with a bunch of other jazz bands. And everyone played two songs from the show or something. I don't know. Anyway, I've been trying to find the Polonius Monk Town Hall live vinyl ever since. Not really hard, but anytime I go into a record store, I look for it. And I've never been able to find it. So you have a vinyl record player? I do, yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. It's not a good one. I'm going to get a new one soon. I just have like an Urban Outfitters one. Oh, okay. It's fine, yeah. It still works. It works, yeah. But I don't have that record and I would love to have it. Second, I love Velvet Underground. I just, again, think it would be so cool to have the Andy Warhol banana vinyl with the original peel-off banana unpeeled, because that's cool. Also, it's a great record. I can't believe you're calling yourself basic for these. So far, I'm like, you use the word cool, and that's definitely the word <laughs> that's coming to mind here. <laughs> you said the words okay. jazz band, and I was like, oh, she is cool. I just, all I want in life, I just want to be cool. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I make music. <laughs> right, right, right. Except me. <laughs> oh. Okay, okay. Next one is another great one. There is this Beatles record, I think it's called Yesterday and Today, with this cover that I think got banned because it was like a bunch of baby dolls chopped up. I think they call it the Butcher album cover. But yeah, it's like a rare release, I guess. I don't know what you call it. Of them, and they're like in white butcher outfits and with all these chopped up babies. I'm going to have to Google that one for sure. Yeah, I'm a huge Beatles fan. I can never pick one Beatles album that would be my favorite. So, so I just picked something that. Oh my God, I just looked it up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I have to give a lot of respect to anyone who puts the Beatles in there because I personally put Abbey Road in mine. You talk about basic. So I think that's like the king of basic. (laughs) Abbey Road is so good. It's so great. Yeah, I love it. I had a good relationship with that one in college. Yeah. Fourth would be Dark Side of the Moon. It's like definitely, I have childhood memories of listening to that, probably on vinyl. My dad gave me a bunch of his vinyls. I think when I like was in high school or went to college, my mom framed them, and Dark Side was one of the ones in my little framed collection. And when I was living with my college band, we lived in like a band house. The drummer had this incredible record collection. 
enormous record collection. And then for a temporary time, my friend who now owns an amazing record shop was living with us and like just had stacks and stacks of vinyls in our house. I spent so many afternoons just laying on the floor of the living room listening to Dark Side. I'm pretty sure that's like the way to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just would always have an experience. I like didn't need anything else. You know, I didn't need to like do drugs or drink. I just lay there and listen to Dark Side and I just felt so transported. So definitely need that in my collection. My fifth one, I feel like. What I originally thought of was David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust, because I love that record as well. But then I was thinking, maybe I really love when you pick out an obscure record and you have no idea what it's going to be, and it's like tribal music or (laughs) some weird percussion loopy thing. Or I have like a couple weird kid song albums that I've randomly picked up and I think my fifth one would just be that. Like, if I had cash and was buying these five records, my fifth one would be, I don't know what this is, but I like the way the cover looks, and I feel like it's going to be an adventure. So, yeah, mystery album for me. Wow. And you were saying that you were going to be basic. (laughs) I've interviewed a decent amount of artists at this point, and you're the first one who said that, and I have to say I love that answer. Oh, thanks. I hope you don't think that I would say that to, I mean, I, I would say that to anyone, but like, I actually, <laughs> I was like, wait, let me, let me catch it's myself fine. before it's I just fine. lie. It's fine. Yeah. It's, fine. it's cool. <laughs> but I, I really mean it. <laughs> Even Thanks. though I said I would say it to anyone, I really mean it. I believe you. I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> yeah. Great. So the last thing I was just going to ask you if you had your TBT or your throwback song picked out. I do. I do. Oh, perfect. So, Lauren, what would your TBT be for your first appearance on Mom Spaghetti? I would like to choose Butterfly by Crazy Town. It's so good. The other night, the night of when I put Turbulence out a couple weeks ago, a couple of my friends who worked on the song came over and we like stayed up super late drinking so much wine and we went down memory lane of Crazy Town. What else did we listen to? A lot of Limp Bizkit. Oh my God. Corn. Marilyn Manson. You guys went deep. <laughs> we went deep. It was so good. And I was like, this is the best TVT playlist right now. But anyway, Butterfly was my song. Oh, and Lit. Oh, that yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Wait, that's the one where it's like, please tell me, right? Yeah, please tell me. Yeah, yeah. My car is in the front yard. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so good. But yeah, Crazy Town, Crazy Town. It's so good. That's so good. I remember that was one of the first songs that I, first of all, I was like, wow. Because that was almost like a rock rap crossover. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of my first introductions to it. And that was one of the first times where I was like, wow, the instrumental can totally change my perception of a song because that beat, like as soon as that guitar lick comes in. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yup. (laughs) <laughs> um, come come my lady come come my lady give me a butterfly sugar baby, baby. <laughs> oh i feel like i know way too many lyrics to that song but also i know i'm like such a sexy sexy pretty little thing <laughs> okay well amazing and the last thing and then i promise i'll let you go if you could just say i'm lauren aka ella Voss, thank you for listening to the mom spaghetti podcast all right 
Hey, I'm Lauren, aka Ella Vaz, and thank you for listening to the Mom's Spaghetti Podcast. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, this has been a really enjoyable hour of social yeah. distancing for me. Yes. I am happy to let you go, Lauren, or I mean, I'm unhappy. I really enjoy talking to you, but <laughs> you know, I want to let you get back to the rest of your day. I wanted to find out before I do let you go, do you have any last words for the listeners when your album comes out and when we should be expecting to see that drop? I just wanted to give the floor to you one last time because I really appreciate the time, Lauren. Oh, yeah, thanks. I don't know if I have an exact date for the album yet, but it's coming out this summer. And the next single is coming out on April 3rd. It's called Burning Bridges. And yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lauren. This was really enjoyable for me. And I am looking forward to the episode with you in it and all of your music. And I hope you enjoy it. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is really fun. I will talk to you soon. Cool. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Lauren. Okay, bye. Thanks for tuning in, fans of Mom Spaghetti and fans of Ella Voss, those from before and those who have been converted from episode 63 and this full interview. Thank you for both Lauren and myself for listening to this whole conversation, and we hope you enjoyed episode 63 as well. We'll keep Ella in our rotation as we eagerly await her new music coming this summer. As for us, remember to hit that subscribe button. We'll be back this Thursday and every Thursday after that, keeping you up to speed on not just Ella Voss, but all of the best new music out. I'm Keith Cohen, your host of Mom Spaghetti. One more huge thank you to Lauren for chatting with me not once, but twice. And, of course, to you, the listeners.